you're all moving around. It's confusing. <laughs> we just kind of start to get a sense of who's who. and You're allowed to move around. It's okay. It's just, okay. Uh, it's a kind of famous um, saying, a reflection on the Buddha's teachings that they go uh, to follow the Buddha's teachings is to go against the stream, to need to swim against the stream. Uh, And that means both of the common culture and society, and obviously all the different cultures, since his culture was very different from ours, but also against the stream of our mental habits, the stream of our views, and the stream of the flow of the habits and views of our culture. So that's a very uh, famous saying. And when Steve talked about right view last night, and remember, this is a test. One of the things he said, quick, what are the four things? He said, one of the things he said that Sariputta said, one of the two things that's essential for the arising of right view is to hear right view. It's the voice of another, to hear right view. You know, he's saying, you know, that kind of goes against our sense of we can figure it out ourselves. We're smart. But I think it's speaking to this sense that we are so immersed in the habits, in the flow of the habits of our mind that we don't even know it, how to look out of it. So this is one, one of the many brilliant delineations the Buddha came to. I mean, how he figured all this stuff out, really beyond genius. But so in terms of how we think about things, there's this perception. So the sixth sense things happening over and over, we've talked about that. And perception is just that recognition. Seeing is happening, or that's a plant. Simple recognition, it's automatic, it happens based on memory. What we perceive, we think about. So that leads to our thoughts, uh, how we think about things. Those thoughts describe and describe us, describe our world, describe how we think about things. And then the thought, the citta, strengthens into ditti, into view. So right view, samaditti, and there's also wrong view, inaccurate view, micca ditti. So what we perceive, we think about. What, how we think about things constructs our world, and then that becomes the view. And it's, it's not that we know we have a view. It's how we know the world is. It's not even something we're aware of. It's just how it is. And so, and we'll talk more about this as we go on, our perceptions, as some of you are starting to recognize, are colored by our conditioning. Or as we're seeing, even if you're just aversive, angry in a moment, it colors the perception, how you see someone, right? And if we're not aware of that, it colors, it, that goes on to inaccurate thinking into inaccurate ditti view of our world. And so just to put out that as a possibility that things and the world may not be exactly how we think it is. And then on top of that, we don't even really know how we think it is, you know, because it's often not something we look at. So a little example, a story. It, I used to use this in a talk, and it came up in the staff dining room the other day. I was telling this story. So I spend uh, a fair amount of time in Burma, which is um, 
the majority of the people in Burma are Buddhist. And where I've been spending time and where I was when this happened was in a, a monastery, a meditation center, hanging out with um, nuns and monks, mostly Burmese people, but also some Western friends, one of whom is a nun, who's been a nun in Burma off and on for 20 years, speaks Burmese, and so really in that culture. And so in that, in that really committed Buddhist culture, uh, it's just a given all the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist worldview, which includes all the different realms of existence, different lifetimes, there's a lot of faith, and that's just part of, of the worldview. So we were, had taken a lot of photographs, and uh, we were looking at the photographs at one, at one specific event where there were several of us and a lot of Burmese people, and it was a, it was a dana offering of some food that was going on. And so in my friend's camera, in a, a two or three of the photos, on some of us and in between some of us are these round, perfectly round light, like round balls of light, you could say, but perfectly round, right? And they're, they're strange looking. And I was like, oh, geez, I wonder what that is. So my uh, friend, the one who's been in Burma for 20 years, looks at that way. She goes, oh, that's Davis. Davis are celestial beings. She wasn't like, oh, it could be or whatever. See, now you laugh because we think, oh, that's totally ridiculous. That's the way we think. But all other Burmese people look, oh, yeah, that's Davis. So another friend who's also you know, quite there a lot, but who has a scientific background, who's actually a PhD scientist, looked at it, that's not Davis. There's moisture in the lens, and it does this, and it refracts the light, and this, and this, and that, right? Both, we're not having an argument, but that's just the worldview is what it is. So okay, maybe something in the camera. I went that way myself. And now the time I've shown people back here, it's really funny to see the different things people say. You know, I mean, no. Well, later I looked in my camera at the photos of the same time and place, and there were those same, like, perfectly round things of light, which I've since seen in other photos in other places. Uh, like, I, I just the most recent one, I was meeting this, we were, was with this uh, very amazing Sayadaw up in Sagain, who's 98, and he's just a being of light and love and laughter. He's an amazing guy. And so there's a photo I was sitting next to him, and there was one of these big balls of light in between. I thought, okay, that could be a deva. That one could be a deva. <laughs> you know? <laughs> My point is, does our mind want to go who's right and who's wrong, and what is it really? My point is, who knows? Who knows? And this, who knows, that willingness to be fresh and present with this openness of not having to know, to recognize the perception we don't know, that's bringing in a quality of fresh, awake awareness. But mostly we're in, I know this is what it is. And we don't even realize, right, that it's our perceptions coloring how we think coloring our worldview, and that someone with a completely, not even completely different, but somewhat different culture and somewhat different conditioning could have a different world. I mean, we run into this all the time, but this is just a good example. So awareness practice, as we're doing here, in those moments of awareness, just bare awareness of whatever's happening without interpretation, which isn't comfortable for us, is it? It's a stepping outside of 
our comfortable, often unquestioned worldview and self-view. And we're, even though we're giving a lot of information, bottom line, we don't want you to just swallow what we say because that snaps awareness shut just in the same way as our other views do. But, but it's really this sense of, well, looking fresh in each moment. That's the quality of awareness, moment-to-moment awareness that we're hoping to, to practice, to cultivate, to get more familiar here. No explanation is final. And even though, and I'll talk about how, how being caught in our explanations is part of what keeps us in confusion and suffering, stepping outside of it or just opening up to not knowing is often rather uncomfortable, you know? We, we like to know. Like someone said today, they don't like chaos, you know? We want to know how things should be, even if it means we're doing it all wrong. At least we know we're doing it all wrong. And there's some comfort in that. Better than, I don't know, right or wrong? There's no right or wrong, whatever I'm doing. That's not, that can't be. There's a right, there's a wrong, I want to know what it is. You know? So this sense of stepping outside of this way of being is, is, is both can be exhilarating, it opens us to this who knows, this being willing to meet each moment as an unknown. But it's also one of the reasons sometimes retreats are rather uncomfortable. Because we, 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 as we continue to open to awareness of each moment, we can't just keep falling back into our old habits. Our old, we will fall back into them, but we'll notice it. And sometimes they stop feeling quite so comfortable. They start feeling a little constricting, a little bit narrow. Or we can't find them again. We want them. Someone was saying in a group today, they, they watched their mind when the pattern stopped of going and searching for an old pattern of worry. At least that's familiar. You know? Watch our minds do this stuff. This is great stuff to see. So this sense of the opening, this willingness to just let awareness meet this moment with who knows? Not having to have every explanation. And, and if the mind does make an explanation, notice that's what it's doing without necessarily having to believe it, right? So that's why right view is something that it's helpful for us to get another angle on because we don't even know the views of the world, the descriptions of the world, and the descriptions of ourself that we're believing, that we're buying, that are in the background, you could say, in our mind, that are running our decisions sometimes. So in this shift, the shift of into steady awareness, into not just holding to a view, this mindfulness is really the heart of it all, is really how can it be this simple, and it's still a question to me even though I'm going to say like I know, but it's still a question, this simple moment-to-moment awareness. Not easy, right? And We see it gets complex. But when you're actually just, there's just awareness of hearing. It's like so simple we can't stand it really, right? It's like that can't be anything. How can this do anything? 
You know, how can it possibly be? And we're gone, you know. We don't even give it half a chance. We're gone because that's the habit. How is it so powerful? How is it not in itself transformative, but how does it set the conditions to open into transformative wisdom to seeing differently? Can't answer it all now, but just saying some, some opinions. So do you know the way the Buddha talked about suffering and freedom from suffering, dukkha. And he said, often, you know, that's what I'm teaching, suffering and freedom from suffering. The suffering, not the freedom that he's talking about, and that our steadiness of awareness, the wisdom it opens into, isn't a a freedom of somehow rearranging all the external and internal aspects of experience so everything's nice. It just isn't. But, you know, that doesn't really sound so great. And even though I might nod and go, yes, notice how many times the mind gets caught up in real struggle because this thing happening shouldn't be happening. And if it weren't happening, I would be happy. Things would be okay. Practice would be possible. Maybe there could be freedom. But not with this in the world. A little thing or a big thing. And so what he's saying, and this is more radical, and speaks to the right view Steve was talking about, is that the suffering that teaches freedom from arises because of our misperception of the way things are, moment to moment, not one big moment to moment, and in subtle little things. That misperception leads to uh, inaccuracy. Like we understand ourselves in the world wrongly some of the time, and based on that, is how we respond, how we think about ourselves, how we try to make ourselves happy. So we respond in ways, basically with clinging, or aversion, with delusion, that are trying to get rid of what we perceive as the cause of our suffering. Because our perception is inaccurate, it doesn't work. And until we stop running like this and just sit and look. And that's what we're doing. Just stop and look at the mind and see how it works. With, for, as time to time, this fresh, open awareness. Sometimes it's not fresh, open awareness, but we notice that too. And then that's another moment of fresh, open awareness. And so one of the things I love actually about the translation of Samaditi as right view is that in my mind, this is what my mind does, I hear that literally, right view as accurate recognition. Accurate seeing, but seeing not just visual, but kind of recognizing any moment of experience accurately, the way it is. That's what leads to freedom. I think it's so elegant. It's so beautiful. The Buddha's not saying, get another world, fix everything, change everything, you'll find freedom. It's like, recognize how our mind and body works accurately. And the delusion that comes in the way we respond to life will fall away, even in a moment, because it doesn't make any sense. When we really see, in a moment, how craving for something that's over is causing suffering. When we see, not, oh, I should, or it's bad, or they said this, but when you, oh, wow, look at that. It makes no sense. It's gone. It's gone. That's a moment of freedom. I think it's so elegant 
that recognizing accurately and mindfulness is what, steadiness of awareness is what makes this possible, is what opens us to the wisdom that brings us to the end of confusion and suffering. And even just for a moment, moment to moment, don't wait for it all to go away and dismiss everything else. Notice the little moments. There's one um, phrase in Pali that I like a lot, I talk about a lot. In, in some teachings, there's like levels of different kinds of insights you have, and they're given names. You don't need to know it. It doesn't matter here for this at all. But one of them is called yata bhuta jnana dasana, which is often translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yata bhuta, often translated things as they are, but as I've been told by two good friends who are Pali scholars, the more accurate translation, the more accurate um, verbal tense or whatever the word is, is things as they have come to be. You get the difference? Things as they have come to be. Don't think about it if you don't just let In this moment, it's a sense of the movement of things, that there is no ever separate one thing. Things as they, as they are is like, boom, this is a separate thing. It's come to be like this. There is no separate thing. Things as they have come to be, to me, it brings in the sense of the, this moment as it's arising in each of our unique experiences is coming to be as the effect of so many previous causes and conditions. And if each of you in your mind starts to enumerate what are some of, and we don't even know all of them, but what are some of the causes and conditions that came to let me come to be at this moment sitting on this sabutan. You'll never stop coming up with things, right? It goes back to your birth. It goes back to your parents' birth. It goes back to the big bang, the beginning of the universe. It goes to the farmers that grow the food. You know, all the conditions coming together. How can you extract anything out and say, this is how it's come, this is how it is? So things as they have come to be gives the sense to me of the the intricacy, the interconnectedness, the living aspect of life. And then this moment's already a new moment, coming to be with the last moment as one of the causes and conditions. And it gives just this sense of, like, not like nowhere to rest, but there's no way you can pull it out and go, this is me, or this is that, or this is that. Just the, the interconnectedness, the movement that we call life, things as they have come to be. What allows for that accurate recognition? Okay, you know now, right? Intelligent awareness, moment to moment, just meeting whatever's arising in this moment. Not trying to figure it out or recognize it accurately, but just that open totality of presence. Whatever arises received in awareness. Maybe we know, oh, that's a deva. Maybe we know, I have no clue what that is. You know, that's my opinion. It's not a deva. My opinion is like this. And then the next moment arises, whatever arises in that moment. So it should be so simple, right? It's not, is it? (laughs) Why don't we recognize accurately? And Steve's going to talk, I think, tomorrow a lot about the kalatia, the torments of mind, the difficult... Uh, mental qualities that basically they distort our perception as well as we're suffering when we experience them. So I'm just mentioning them, but that's one of the big things. 
there's a quotation um, um, from the Buddha talking about Nibbana is a word in Pali. One of the uh, synonyms is the unconditioned or the unborn. So the moment of recognition, it's not a place or a thing, but it's, it's freedom from conditioned experience, freedom from suffering. He says, the Buddha says often, this Nibbana, this Dhamma, visible here and now. Someone asked the Buddha, to what extent is it visible here and now? Not in another world, not in another body, not in another experience. And the Buddha says, to the extent that greed, that hatred, that delusion, ignorance, confusion, are not present in the citta. The citta is the mind, the heart, the consciousness. They're not present in a moment. To that extent, nibbana, freedom, is visible here and now. And then Ajahn Pasano, who's uh, an English, he's English, right? Is Ajahn Pasano English? It doesn't matter. He's American, Canadian. Ah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> he's a monk in the Ajahn Chah Thai, Thai forest tradition for many, many years. And uh, uh, anyway, that's who he is. And he, he's a abbot of a, a monastery in Northern California. So he says from that, about that quotation, and thus our own direct experience is where we can recognize whether or not we're creating suffering by following lust, hatred, and delusion. In our own direct experience, we can also experience the absence of suffering and the peace that comes when these qualities, this following this greed, hatred, and delusion are abandoned. We're talking in a moment, not forever, in a moment. This is direct perception of the results that come from putting the teachings into practice. It's what has inspired the followers of the Buddha to continue to practice and train in accordance with his teachings. So I say that for us, not to be followers of the Buddha, but it's our own direct perception. It's our own direct experience that's brought about, that's made possible through the steadiness of you know, non-interpretive open awareness, our own direct experience of both how suffering is created and how it is when, it's, when it is released, when we're not following that. This is possible, and not some esoteric you know, 45 years from now. It's possible in any moment. What's so amazing is the next moment we completely forget about it and go running around after whatever it is. But then we can notice that again. So our own direct experience, yata bhuta, accurate recognition of things as they have come to be in this moment. So back to our, our wrong view, the, the downstream way of the world, often called samsara, the sense of this ongoing search for pleasure and avoidance of unhappiness and thinking that somehow that's going to make us happy. I just want to read this from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. It may be, it's possibly challenging, I don't know. I personally find it quite inspiring, but it may be challenging, but I just want to read this. He was a quite amazing Tibetan teacher, Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. So um, it's a long quote, I won't read all of it, but he talks about three fundamental attitudes in the Buddhist teaching corresponding to kind of three paths or three aspects of our practice, which can be practiced as an integrated whole. 
just talking about the first one tonight, but I'll say the three. The renunciation, compassion, and pure perception, these three. Renunciation, what he's talking about renunciation might be different from what you think, you know, which is like give up everything nice and go into a monastery. But what he's talking here is it's the strong wish to free oneself, not only from life's immediate sorrows, which of course we all have that, but from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara, samsara being this cycle of conditioned existence, the cycle of the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. He's, just, he's defining renunciation as a kind of a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment that comes with seeing the endlessness of this cycle of quest for pleasure, gratification, approval, profit. That's what he's calling renunciation. Not that we give up things, but we see, and this is yata bhuta, we're seeing in a clear way, oh, what I thought, what we thought was actually the way to live, the way to happiness is actually an endless cycle that keeps us spinning in suffering and wanting and confusion. And then, of course, and I'll talk later another time, but when we see that for ourselves, naturally compassion arises, both for ourselves, but when we see others caught in that same confusion, there's a natural compassion of heart. And the pure perception is the, well, I'm really diluting this very, so, okay, but it's, it's a different language, uh, Tibetan language, but really seeing that every sentient being has the essence of Buddhahood, the essence of awakening in them, the pure perception, seeing the primordial purity in that way. So in talking tonight about against the stream, starting to see, starting to open to the futility, the weariness of samsara. And that's not something that's really current you know, in the culture, it's not the messages we get. And it's often not what we want to look at. Now, do you feel all inspired and uplifted? I know I did, but you may not. It's like, oh, no, you know, what do you mean? And then we think, I can't want anything. I can't have anything. What are you telling me? I have to go sit in a room. You know, our mind goes into all this kind of reactivity. Maybe yours didn't, but some people's do, sometimes. But let me give you this kind of funny, embarrassing, a little embarrassing. Anyway, an example of samsara, because samsara, the way it seduces us, isn't that we're aware of suffering all the time. It seduces us with the promise of happiness, and we get caught in it because we think it actually is happiness, increasing our happiness. It keeps us looking to the next thing for happiness, and in that looking to the next thing, the awareness, yata bhuta, how things are arising right in this moment, we don't notice. We overlook. And that delusion keeps us spinning. So I think I've, I've told this before, but last summer, I noticed this really big time in my own experience. I happen to be a big fan of professional tennis. I love to watch professional tennis, men's professional tennis. God knows why I don't play it. But anyway, I love to watch it. And as with, with many people, if you have a sport, you'll have particular 
people, players in the sport that are your favorite. So of course I have one, Roger Federer, who last year, when I noticed this, was on a big upswing. And so it was coming up time to Wimbledon, which is one of the biggest tournaments of the year. And so I was watching, you know, I get all like just watching the whole thing. But for some reason, my awareness of the whole process kicked in a little more strongly than usual. And I saw this whole process, which I think no one's making me watch tennis. I do it because it's supposed to be really enjoyable, right? So when I'm watching and he's playing, I'm a nervous wreck, which is ridiculous. I don't know the guy. You know, what do I care? It's just watching. It's just perception of seeing, you know, and some idea. I'm in it, but really, it is not an enjoyable experience. But I think it is. I'm doing this for pleasure. So... And, and my friends, uh, you know, my friends who have been around me when I'm watching attest to that. That that's, I was telling the story with Joseph, and he's going, oh, "Really? She's not fun to be around when he's playing if he's losing." And so, so I was watching this, and of course, so in a sport like that, the ultimate happiness is the person wins, right? So in Wimbledon, he happened to win it. And it, it was um, a thing that made him number one in the world again, like the last. It's all these, all these firsts, all these big things, like the best it could possibly be. He won the thing. He got back to number one. He won it you know, more than anyone else. So there's nothing that could have been better. So that should be the ultimate of happiness. But I was watching that. How long does it last? How long does it last? A day. Because then the Olympics are coming up. And it all starts over again. It all starts over again. And whatever happens there, when that's over, it all starts over again. And then it changes. And now he's not even playing so much. And his back hurts. And he's not number one anymore. And he hasn't won anything since then. And, you know, and, it, and I said, ah, this is actually a, a good example of samsara. Because when you don't pay attention to what's actually going on moment to moment, I keep getting caught up in it. Yeah, okay, now Wimbledon's over. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, and then I'm on the computer, you know, in two days, checking out and what's going to happen in the Olympics. And I was in Switzerland or somewhere. I'm always somewhere else in the Olympics and trying to, you know, get the computer to work. And I was with my friend somewhere in a restaurant, and she had her little cell phone. She said, oh, look, Carol, I can, it's in Switzerland. So it's good to like Roger in Switzerland. Everybody's always pulling it out and showing me. And I saw, oh, you know, the whole process, there's not many moments of real pleasure in that process. There are some of real pleasure, and that's what keeps you going. But none of that has anything <laughs> to do with freedom. But that's the way, do you get a sense that's the way samsara works? It's a little bit funny, a little bit obvious, but underneath, because we don't really look, we kind of take it for granted. So in many ways, in gross ways like that, in very subtle ways, we don't have this weariness with samsara, with this endless quest for gratification. But some of the effects of it is it keeps us, you know, okay, now it's not good, but some new thing comes up. We may not even notice the wanting or this isn't okay, this outside thing isn't okay. And that's a mistake, because stuff's supposed to be better. So how can we fix it? How can we make it? And it didn't work this time, but then there'll be the next time. And it's this endless quest. 
And when it's satisfied, then a new one comes up because nothing lasts. I think it was Chogyam Chungpa who had a wonderful phrase for definition of samsara as the urge to correct. So just notice in our minds, even when things are as good as they can be, how long does it last? And there's the urge to get it a little bit better, a little bit better. And so it keeps our attention focused outward, so to speak, on the object. It's a good object. It's a bad object. How can I make it better? How can I? Keeping focused outward. And what we want to do and what we're doing here is turning the awareness, the attention around and just noticing the process. So when I started noticing the process, I mean, I could have told you, but actually feeling, like when Steve was talking about awareness, is you're feeling how it feels. Feel that urge to correct, to get it better, to get it again. Oh, this isn't good, but the next one will be. We won't really look at that. And then just feel that onward leading, the endlessness of that. Not with judgment, but to look and see, oh, maybe there is another way. This is what can open us to some sense of commitment, of trust and faith to just, okay, let me bring this open awareness to things as they are, not assuming I know how things are. It's a shift of perception that allows us to look. It's steady awareness that allows us to see this process. And the, uh, what, what he's calling the weariness with it, the kind of renunciation of this, isn't a kind of aversion. It's not like, and it's not an act of will. I want to say renunciation, true renunciation, is an inner uh, quality of mind and heart that's wholesome, that's peaceful, that's joyful. It's not like a throwing something away out of fear and aversion, because that's fear and aversion. <laughs> that's not renunciation. That's not wholesomeness. So. Like when I saw that, I can't say I renounced tennis because that wouldn't be true. I was just watching it this afternoon. (laughs) But it wasn't Roger, so it's just very interesting. (laughs) And that's also interesting to see, you know. So wow, watching the skill, watching what goes on, okay, that's fun. And then, you know, they say, okay, well, it's going to be a tie break, but we're running out of time on the TV because we have to put on the big basketball game. And they stopped it. That was it. Boom. (laughs) I was really okay with that. Okay, that's the sign. <laughs> okay, good. I was okay with it. That's what renunciation is. It's like not the not holding on. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything. So this renunciation is not aversion. It's not depression. It's not like, oh, the whole world is disgusting and we'll give it all up. It's not that. But it's this sense of stepping outside of our normal way of looking at things with an openness to explore, to recognize more accurately, without an expectation of what that means. And that's when we can begin to discover how suffering is created, how freedom arises. Not when we think we know. And as we've said 10 million times, of course, the key, the place that we can put in our commitment is the willingness to wake up into awareness moment after moment after moment. We can't create wisdom. We can't say, now I'm going to see things as they have come to be, free from Kalatia. It doesn't work, right? I'm sure you've tried. We've all tried. But we can wake up and go, oh, now, wanting is happening. And awareness of wanting is like this. And then the next moment, and then the next moment. 
That's what we can do. Again, that makes it sound simple, doesn't it? That's our job, to make it sound simple. We know it's not. So I just want to say a couple, there's many ways. So just uh, mention maybe two ways of how it gets so complicated. Just not for you to hold on to, but and, and I think you're going to know both of these. We've talked about them already. But just you know to put in a little seed of inquiry to see when it starts to feel complicated or stressed or dissonant. So as, as Steve has said, and maybe I said, I don't know who said what, about how all we experience is six things, right? Over and over and over. So just think back for a moment to this day. How, how many times have the six sense experiences come, right? It's just over and over constantly. You couldn't count. Just how many even thoughts have you had? And that's just one of the six sense doors, right? So that's what's happening all day long, whether we like it or not. Now, that's not a problem. How does it get so complicated instead of, oh, seeing, hearing, thinking, smelling, tasting, seeing, hearing, thinking, la, 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 you know? (laughs) How does it get so complicated? So one is, of course, the habits of mind that, again, we don't see, that come, that feed into and come out of this samsaric round, this thinking that getting the pleasant's going to make us happy. is what we really, the habit, that our mind is kind of practicing most of our life when we're not aware, is, you know, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste comes, and without even recognizing it, you know, it's met it. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's neither one. We don't notice that. But in a subtle way, or a gross way, we like it, or we don't like it, or we don't pay any attention to it, because it's not worth attention. And that can be big, oh, I really don't like that sound, it's driving me crazy. Or it can be some little sound that we don't even notice, or it can be some little nice sound and we're not aware of, yeah, that's nice, that's a pleasant sound. You know, you're just gonna feel, mm. you kind of lean toward it, or you kind of lean away from it, or you just ignore it completely and look for something more interesting to pay attention to, right? Over and over, all of these senses, all of these thoughts. And even when they're neither pleasant or unpleasant, pleasant we lean toward. And again, what we perceive, that we think about and use it to describe our world. So it reinforces the sometimes unrecognized, unacknowledged view. It fuels the view, you know, that happiness, peace, rightness, goodness, ease in life all have to do with pleasant, nice experience. Something's unpleasant. Difficult? What am I doing wrong? What are they doing wrong? How can I fix this? What's, you know, and it doesn't mean we never do anything. I'm not saying that. But the underlying view that fuels samsara, it's unpleasant. Something's wrong. There's something I should be able to do to get things better. The urge to correct. The urge to correct. Or we don't even notice it. Which in our daily life, there's so much stuff going on that we don't even notice what we don't notice because there's just so much coming in. But I don't even have to say with all the media how the attention span has gotten down to two and a half seconds or whatever it is. And as, me- as soon as it's a little bit neutral, we're bored. And then boredom's a problem. It's just another mental state. Here we notice it. It doesn't have to be a problem. But this 
what we're practicing, all of us are really good at it, is in this subtle way reacting to almost every sense experience that's coming through, even when it's very subtle. And the third way that we get involved in it, you know, lean towards it pleasant, lean away unpleasant, a whole story about what it means about me or to me. Or how can I fit into this? Or what is this doing to me? Or how, you know? And we don't even notice that either. It's just another thing of thoughts. It becomes part of the fabric. Remember Steve was talking about, we take all these various different experiences and through thought weave the fabric of who we think we are. Not noticing that that's changing. The story of who we think we are is changing all the time. Again, we may not notice that. So this is... Just, it's a habit, deeply ingrained to the point that we don't necessarily notice it until we start, you know, moment to moment awareness. And it seems so normal that we accept it. Like when I talked about pain this morning or sometime, and I said, well, when pain comes up, of course we want it to go away. There's a version. Of course there's a version. That's normal, and it is normal. But don't we think in some way, of course I have aversion to pain. Who the heck wants pain? That's the way things are, you know? To even open to the possibility, oh, freedom from suffering doesn't mean freedom from pain. It doesn't mean we're looking for pain either. Don't get me wrong. But it's a whole different paradigm. And so that's one of the ways it gets so complicated. And it keeps our attention, our sense of focus, involved in whatever the object is. So this object, this experience, this sound, or this thought about myself, or this emotion, or this perception of how this person's looking at me and the way it makes me feel. All the objects, right? This sound, whatever. The energy, the meaning, is all given into the object. We're involved in reacting to it, or liking it, or trying to fix it. The meaning of the world, the meaning of ourself, is largely, when unexamined, derived from relationship to object. And so that keeps our attention turned out. We're trying to make the objects better. And of course, we bring that into meditation, because that's how the mind's working. So if, if the meditation, and, and it's whatever particular one you made up in your mind, which could change, if it's more spacious, it's better. If it's more calmer, it's better. If it's, you know, whatever feels better, it's better. But it keeps us looking that way. That keeps us spinning in samsara. And until we just stop, and what shifts is we don't, again, we're not perceiving, we're perceiving experience as separate. This is bad, let's get a better one. And hopping from experience to experience without the steadiness of awareness that just allows for the whole series of events and cause and effect. And we start to then see how things come together to create this experience, how they fall apart, what causes create sleepiness, what causes create aversion. You know, you can just explore it. But when we're focused on objects, relating to objects, it's like we're each living in our separate little bubble of me, you know, and my ideas and how each thing relates to me and the little bubbles kind of bump up against each other sometime, but we're all kind of separate and our experiences are separate. And it's just not like that. 
So the shift into yata bhuta is when we start to notice the wider, deeper, more inclusive view of experience. Not just focusing on object, but we shift to the process. Andy Olensky, who's the, uh, he used to be the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Now he's the senior scholar, Pali scholar. He wrote this one time, I really like it. He said, as sati's mindfulness grows, our mental attention, our mental capacity, gradually shifts from the objects of attention to the process of being aware. That's exactly what we're talking about here. So this shift involves, requires an attitude of letting go of the object, abandoning attachment to the object. It doesn't mean you push the object away, just abandoning that attachment, that involvement with the object. The mind is a dynamic process. When the mind is stuck on what has arisen, it is rigid and limited. But the mind that is letting go, moment after moment, keeps opening to the emerging flow, keeps opening to things as they have come to be in this moment. You get a sense of that a little bit? And then watch how the mind turns it into, okay, this is now what I have to do. That's just what our mind does. You just notice that. You just notice that. So that's really the shift. The shift from involvement in object and meaning to the process of awareness itself. To me, that's like the paradigm shift. And this is my language, but it, I, it, it's true for me. I really feel like it's a shifting refuge. Refuge from samsara, refuge from trying to correct, from trying to get it okay, to taking refuge in loving awareness. And it really, you do really start to, to love awareness. It's like whatever's arising, go, oh, that's wanting, is like this, and feeling the awareness of the wanting. It doesn't matter what's happening in that moment. It really doesn't. This isn't an intellectual thing, but it's a moment of, it's not complete freedom, it's not liberation, but it's such a sense of difference. Of, oh, okay, it's craving. It's like this. There's the awareness. And the interest is in that awareness and the process of awareness. So that's why we're always harping on it, because we mostly don't even notice it or recognize it. It's just so normal and no big deal. So here we just want to recognize it, like the foreground-background shift from object to the process of awareness. And the more we just start to take refuge there, to trust that shift, then the sense of the awareness gets steadier and steadier. And that's when the uh, accurate recognition, right view, can start to arise of itself. So that's really the best way I can describe the power of intelligent awareness to really transform our understanding of the world and the way we live in it and actually lead to freedom. Okay, one other little way, not little, but same thing in terms of the objects arising happening so often. Another way it gets complicated is And I think Steve referred to this last night. 
so much of what is happening, there's still the, the leaning into it, the leaning out, the ignoring it. So much of what's happening is just so ordinary. And you take it to neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You know, when you're, when you're walking from here to the dining room, seeing is a, occurring every moment. You know, but other than a particular object that we might glom into, we don't often notice seeing, seeing, seeing. You know, it's just so ordinary. Or sensations in the body, or whatever. It's just repetitive happening over and over. Hearing, hearing, seeing, seeing. Feeling the breath, feeling sensations. It's just because there's so much happening in every moment, as you're all aware. I'm not saying we should try and catch everything. I'm not saying that at all. Please don't make yourself crazy. But this sense of it being so ordinary, sort of waiting for something special to happen, is another way that we lose awareness. Well, this isn't worth paying attention to, so I'll wait until something really important comes. So just notice when that's happening. And again, awareness doesn't care. Awareness isn't like more, I want to say lovable, of course it isn't lovable, but it isn't more um, fulfilling if the object's incredible. It doesn't matter. It's that sense of moving into the appreciation, the fascination with the process rather than the object. It doesn't matter at all what the object is. And this is something Tejaniya says a lot, our tendency, our samsaric tendency, to think bigger is better, intense is more meaningful, means that we wait for the intense experience and think insight's going to arise from that. And all this repetitive stuff, which makes up how much of our lives? 99%? We're kind of, oh, yeah, right, they're seeing, they're hearing. Not really that pristine openness, that opening into the unknown. But insight can arise with anything. It can arise from the most mundane perception because it's not about what the object is. It's about the steadiness of awareness, that freshness of not knowing that, the time when, when the mind lets go of the old views that are constricting and not allowing us to recognize accurately. And you never know when that's going to happen. You never know. So that's why every moment of awareness might be it. But if you're wanting, then be aware of that. Dogen Zenji, who was a, a great Zen master, said, if you cannot discover the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? <laughs> so that's another for, that's a form of delusion. And the one last form of delusion, confusion, I want to mention something Tejaniya talks about a lot, but I'm sure you'll recognize it, is again how we take a perception of anything and the descriptions, the thoughts in the mind, we make all these assumptions. Basically, we make up a story about what it means, and then we believe the story. But sometimes we can see ourselves doing it. Here on retreat is a pretty good place to see that. When you're in silence, and if you don't know a lot of people here, has anyone noticed, like you see someone, you've seen them a few times, you see them come sit down, you see them walk in the dining room, you don't even know their name. You know, you have a whole story about them, right? What they're like, what their personality's like. I don't know how far it goes. It might just be a feeling sense. But do you know what I mean? Complete assumption. 
But we, we kind of, in the longer retreat goes, the more you really start to believe it. You know, on three-month retreats, people really can get out there, you know, about what they think other people are like. And then when silence breaks and they talk, you know, people have told me, I'm not making this up, like in one one-minute conversation, all their assumptions were just shattered. You know, they were in love with the person. The person opens their mouth and is like, oh, my God. <laughs> Nothing like what I thought this person was. <laughs> but, but we believe it, yeah? So that's an easy one to see. But we do it as making up a view, basically. We do it with practice a lot. We do it whenever we think we know. We don't recognize we think we know. You'll know you're up against an assumption, an expectation, when there starts to be friction, when there starts to be dissonance. So let's take you know, your practice here. Well, I'm walking up and down. I'm just, like I said the other day, i just walking up and down thinking about stuff. This can't be right practice. Or someone said today, I feel like it's, it's really easy, it's fun. It can't be right, you know? Notice the assumptions we're making the stories we make up. And again, as Steve said, that's what we do about our stories of who we are. So watch that. It's a lot of fun. It really is. If you're just watching it without judging, just with this unbiased awareness, uninterpreting awareness, watch the stories. What particular experiences or memories or perception, that person looked at me funny and it brings up all the bad things I ever did in my life. Notice that. And then all the bad memories that you have and that story of me and the feeling that goes with it. And it feels so true and it feels so real. It's real in the moment and that that feeling is real. That that story is accurate is not real. And then notice when it changes. The next day. The next minute. No, just watching that. That's really a huge delusion. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, who again is a maybe 40 years monk in the Thai forest tradition, a very great respected teacher. He says, so then the self arises. I start thinking about myself, my feelings, my memories, my past, my fears and desires, and the whole world arises around Ajahn Sumedho. Can you relate to that? It takes off into orbit, my views, my feelings, my opinions. And I can get caught into that world, that view of me that arises in consciousness. And that's all it is, a view arising in consciousness in that moment is an object, like any other object. But If I know that's what's happening, that it's just a view in consciousness, then my refuge is no longer in being that person. I'm not taking refuge in being a personality or my views or opinions. And so it goes away, I let it go, and the world of Ajahn Sumedho ends. Now he says, ending doesn't mean that Ajahn Sumedho dies or the world ends or that I'm unconscious, none of those things. In Buddha Dhamma, the world is the world we create in consciousness. That's why we can be living in different worlds. The world of Ajahn Sumedho is not gonna be the same world that you create, but that world arises and ceases. And that which is aware of the world arising and ceasing is transcending that world. So our refuge then is in this awareness 
rather than in trying to sustain refined experiences in consciousness as our refuge, because you can't do it. Resting in this conscious awareness is, I refer to as he's speaking, he refers to resting in this conscious awareness as coming home, or our real home. That's what I call just taking refuge in awareness, loving awareness. And awareness includes anything. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.